We're going to be looking at Genesis 13 this morning, if you'd like to look there. Began our annual family month emphasis last week with Paul's letter to the Colossians. We saw that it's possible to approach relationships in the Lord. Husbands love their wives in the Lord. Wives submit to their husbands in the Lord. Children obey their parents in the Lord. Doing so changes our perception of things. It gives us depth. Encountering people in the Lord will transform relationships, including the relationships in our own families. Last week we got an overview, saw from a distance what a 3D family, a family with spiritual depth, might look like. Now for the rest of the month, we'll view close-ups. We'll see what it looks like to do relationships in the Lord by reflecting on experiences in the life of the patriarch Abraham. So our text is chapter 13 of Genesis. Abraham's just returned to Canaan after a near disaster in Egypt. Let me read for us the first 12 verses. So Abram, by the way, the rest of this month we're going to be looking at the life of Abraham. And I will keep calling him Abraham, and in places the text will call him Abram. And his name was changed. I'm going to go with the latter name when I just speak routinely because that's what every New Testament writer does. He never, no New Testament writer ever calls him Abram. They'll call him Abraham, and I'll follow their example. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. And Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. From the Negev, he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier, and where he had first built an altar. There Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. But the land couldn't support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarreling arose between Abram's herdsmen and the herdsmen of Lot. The Canaanites and the Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. So Abram said to Lot, let's not have any quarreling between you and me, or between your herdsmen and mine, for we're brothers. Isn't the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot looked up and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt towards Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Before we consider what this passage says about our theme about 3D families, we need to place it in its particular context and do our best to understand why the author included it in his narrative. The story is really not about Abraham's generosity or about Lot's greed. Our author didn't tell this story to illustrate the moral that we ought to put others first, though that's a principle we find elsewhere in the Bible, but that's not the purpose of the story. This account is included because it furthers the story of God's promise to Abraham. That promise is of central importance to our author and to the entire Bible, Old Testament, New Testament alike. 
That promise is the thread that holds the 66 books of the Bible together. It was to fulfill that promise that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, buried, and rose again. If it were possible to remove that promise, the Bible would unravel. It was to this promise that Paul referred in his letter to the Galatians, calling it the gospel in advance. Chapter 12 records this promise to Abraham. God chose him to be the one through whom blessing will come to all the nations of the earth. Chapter 13, the chapter we just read, advances the story of how God kept his promise. In fact, from chapter 12 on, Genesis is the account of the promise. After it was given in chapter 12, we encounter one obstacle after another to its fulfillment. The near disaster in Egypt that I mentioned was the first. In chapter 13, Abraham's nephew, Lot, becomes the second. With the removal of each obstacle, we move closer to the realization of the promise that God will bless all the nations of the earth through Abraham and his seed. Lot was an obstacle to the promise's fulfillment. He was also a thorn in Abraham's side. And that brings us back to our theme of encountering others, especially family members, in the Lord. Lot was Abraham's nephew. He'd been with Abraham and Sarah ever since the death of his father, Abraham's younger brother. In many ways, Lot was like the son that Abraham never had or hadn't had. When Abraham left Chaldea, Lot went with him. When he moved to Egypt, Lot went with him. When he returned to Canaan, to the Negev in the south of the land, Lot returned with him. Abraham had done well in Egypt, done well in the stock market in Egypt. Verse 2, Abraham had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. He was rich. He was, as people used to say, a fat cat. And that is not too far removed from the way it's put in Hebrew. Abraham was heavy, verse 2, in livestock and silver and gold. Wealth is, in some ways, a weight, a burden to be borne. It saves us from some trouble, but it introduces us to others. The good old Bible scholar Matthew Henry once said of riches, there is a burden of care in getting them, fear in keeping them, temptation in using them, guilt in abusing them, and sorrow in losing them. And yet we are bound and determined to have them, aren't we? John Wesley believed that if people would only follow biblical principles, most, not all, he was no prosperity gospel preacher, most would acquire a surplus of money. If they worked as for the Lord and not for men, they would make money. If then they used their money to glorify God rather than waste it on frills and momentary pleasures, they would save money. But then Wesley thought that once people had money, they would be tempted to trust in it rather than in the Lord. And so the next generation to come along would keep the money, but it would abandon the biblical principles. And generations to come would end up right back where the first generation started. Look at verses 3 and 4. From the Negev, he, Abraham, went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, 
where his tent had been earlier and where he had first built an altar. There, Abram called on the name of the Lord. You can mark Abraham's life by the altars that he built. An altar was a place for offering oneself in the form of one's possessions to God. It was a place of worship and sacrifice. Abraham built altars almost everywhere he went. He lived an in-the-Lord kind of life. He had depth perspective. God was in view in his everyday world. If you go through Genesis noting every time Abram built an altar, you will discover that when he did so, he was spiritually strong. But there were a few times when he did not build altars. And those, coincidentally, turn out to be the times when he was not spiritually strong. He didn't build an altar in Egypt and that near disaster when he lied to Pharaoh and got himself into big trouble. The same is true when he got self-protective with Abimelech, and he almost lost Sarah at that time. According to our text, Abraham returned to this place where he'd built an altar previously, Bethel, means house of God. Interestingly, his grandson Jacob would have a life-changing encounter with God in that very place. You see, the spiritual victories a man or woman, a woman wins will continue to have an effect on his or her family for generations, as will their spiritual defeats. In verse 5, we get our first hint of trouble. Now, Lot, who was moving about with Abraham, also had flocks and herds and tents. And at first, it made sense to stick together. They were family, and they were foreigners in a land where raiders sometimes crossed the border to steal cattle, livestock, and women. The more hands they employed, the safer they were. But there was a problem. There was a limited number of watering holes. Grazing lands were sparse during certain seasons, and it was critically important that their livestock not deplete them, or they wouldn't be there the next season when they returned. But by now, Abraham and Lot had such large herds that the land couldn't support both of them. One of them would have to move on. In his commentary on Genesis, John Walton points out that, as always, competing needs lead to conflicts. And that's just what happened. Verse 7, And quarreling arose between Abram's herdsmen and the herdsmen of Lot. The Canaanites and the Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. So the people of the promise, the people of God, began to quarrel. And as usually is the case, there were other people who saw what was happening. When competing needs lead to a Christian family into conflict, other people see that too. When Christian spouses can't get along and go their separate ways, people take note. When Christian church members quarrel, people talk. You may not have noticed, but the Canaanites and the Perizzites still live next door. Parasites, not parasites, in case you're thinking. <laughs> they may live next door too, but... <laughs> they see, and they say, all that God talk, that's all it is. It's empty talk. And tragically, some of the people who say that are the children of Christian parents. If Abraham had approached Lot and tried to settle this, on his own, instead of in the Lord, it could have been a disaster. No doubt both men felt that they had rights to defend. 
Both felt wrongs had been done. Both found the thought of moving thousands of head of cattle and large herds of sheep, not to mention hundreds of workers and their families, dreadful. You can be sure that the two men had been thinking about their competing needs for some time. It was obvious something was going to have to be done, but what? How were they going to protect themselves and their investments? If they parted ways, who got what? Lot, I suspect, worried more about that than did his uncle. Once the fights began, which the neighbors witnessed, Abraham knew he had to act. So he approached Lot. Remember, Lot is his closest relative. Lot is the son he hasn't had. And, and he did so in the Lord. He didn't come to him in his pride or, or on his rights or by his wisdom. He came in humility, in the Lord's authority, and in grace. Because he had confidence in God's promise and felt secure in God's care, he was able to do what few people could have done. He said to Lot, this is verse 8, let's not have any quarreling between you and me. That implies that that potential was there and may have already been realized. Let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herdsmen and mine, for we're brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. You go to the left, I'll go to the right. You go to the right, I'll go to the left. Abraham gave Lot first choice. To understand the magnanimity of that offer, we need to remember the customs by which this culture operated. The fitting thing, the expected thing for Lot to do would be to say, no, my father, I'd have nothing except for you. You choose. And they would have gone on like that for a few minutes, each expressing respect for the other, each bowing to the other. But in the end, the older man would have made the choice. That's the way things were done. But Lot saw an opportunity to advance his position. Look at verses 10 and 11. Lot looked up and saw the whole plain of the Jordan was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt towards Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out for the east. Something I'd never noticed before until I was preparing for this sermon. Thus far in Genesis, every time a person moves east, he moves away from the Lord. When Adam and Eve were driven out of Eden, they went east, east of Eden. When Cain went out of the Lord's presence, that's in chapter 4 and verse 16, he went east. The men who built Babel, chapter 11 and verse 2, had been traveling east. This time it was Lot. He was facing the wrong direction, and his first step in that direction was a selfish one. It wasn't long before Lot found himself on a downward spiritual slide. Jesus told us, didn't he? And he told us on a number of occasions, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Lot is the textbook example of the validity of that principle. Now that ought to give us pause. You may be absolutely certain that the step you're about to take will be the biggest one of your life but make sure it's in the right direction. <laughs> Lot did not approach his uncle or his situation in the Lord. His choices were not guided by submission to God, but by success in the world. He lacked depth perception. Now, we're not going to follow Lot's story today, but you can read about it yourself in chapters 14, 18, and 19. Suffice it to say that Lot lost his credibility. 
lost his family, eventually lost his fortune. That downward slide started because he was facing the wrong direction. Which direction are you facing? I wonder if in the moment it took Lot to make his choice. I wonder if Abraham was assailed by doubts. What's going to happen? But when Lot had gone, which was necessary, it was never God's intention to give Lot and his descendants a share in the promised land. When Lot was gone, God affirmed his promise to Abraham. Look at verse 14. Lift up your eyes from where you are and look north and south, east and west. All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. How does Abraham respond to that? What do we find him doing in the end of this chapter? He's building another altar. Abraham's is an in the Lord 3D kind of life. Now, there are a couple of things that remain to be said. You may wonder why Lot was an obstacle to the fulfillment of the promise. Why God never intended to give him a share in the promised land. The easiest answer, and a true one, is that God made a sovereign choice. He's God. He does whatever pleases him, and it pleased him to make his promise to Abraham and his descendants. When you think of that, think of Christ, Jesus, rather than to Lot and his descendants. But that answer can be unpacked a little more. By chapter 18, Lot was in great danger, and he didn't even know it. He had settled down in the city of Sodom, which was about to be destroyed. His family was highly dysfunctional. His sons-in-law had no respect for him at all. His daughters lacked common sense. That was Lot's lot in life. And remember, he'd chosen it himself. But of Abraham, God says, I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him. And they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment. What a difference between these two men. And there's something we can learn from this. God does not order our lives in light of what will happen next, in the next days and months, but in the light of what will happen in the next generations. And we must do the same. Lot did not. Abraham did. Finally, we started off by setting this passage in its context. I wanted us to see how Genesis 13 advances God's story, not just Abraham's story. God's story is about his plan and work to heal and restore creation through his son, Jesus. In chapter 13, and for that matter, in every chapter through chapter 25, when the patriarch finally dies, God's story and Abraham's story run together. Here's the thing I want us to understand. We can only live our lives in full 3D, that is, with the God dimension in full view, when our story intersects with God's story, the healing and restoration of creation through his son, Jesus. Many people want to live life their own way and yet still have God present to rescue them when they're in trouble, heal them when they're sick, and take them to heaven when they die. Just don't bother them while they're busy. 
That is not how it works. And it's a frustration to us to try to make it happen that way. And it leads to all kinds of doubt. But if that's my idea, live my own way, get God to do me favors when I need them, I will imagine that I can bribe God by reading the Bible or by going to church or by giving money to some ministry or to the poor, or I'll think that I can achieve some kind of spiritual superiority if I do these things. I'll walk around sensing God's presence, experiencing realities that common people don't experience and living an exalted life. Look, God doesn't charge for his gifts. You can't bribe him with your church attendance or your money. It's not those things that he wants. He wants you. Those things will take care of themselves when he has you. The only way to live in full 3D with spiritual depth is to bring the short story of your life into the epic story of his life. In theology, that transfer is called conversion. It happens when we believe in Jesus Christ and offer our lives to him whom we acknowledge as Lord and Master. He then takes our life into his and places his life in us. We can insist on keeping our story separate from his story. That is, we can refuse conversion. If that's what we choose, God will not be a part of our story. He's not interested in making cameo appearances. But understand that when the chronicles of planet Earth are compiled... Only the stories that have been incorporated into God's story will survive. It will then be clear that the other stories never really had any point to begin with. But the stories that were incorporated into God's story will be told again and again throughout the kingdom. And they will be but the introduction and prologue to the story that goes on forever in which God himself is the protagonist and we have rules to die for. Now let's pray. Oh God, take our story into yours. Open our eyes and our hearts to the beauty of that story and the glory of being a supporting character. Lord, do this for our sakes, because we need it, but also for the sake of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we pray. Amen.